our study of the parables actually started with the last sermon in the series on hospitality in which we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And since then we have studied the parable of the friend who came at midnight and the parable of the unforgiving servant. And rather than review what we looked at last week, the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant, I want to remind you or point out something that I may may have failed to mention. That is that forgiveness requires wrongdoing. In our worship, the prayer of confession comes before the promise of forgiveness. In order to be forgiven, we have to acknowledge that, in fact, we have done wrong. To do wrong, wrongdoing requires morality, a system of morality. We cannot think of God's forgiveness without acknowledging that, in truth, there is such a thing as right and wrong, and that our violation of these, either in failing to do what is right or in doing what is wrong, we have done wrong. But I think we face at least two difficulties, or maybe we feel two difficulties when it comes to this issue. The first is we don't like to admit that we've done wrong. We may, in fact, apologize to people for some, and, you know, say, I'm sorry, and expect some type of neutral response like, well, that's okay, or thanks for for that. But the notion that we might, in fact, need forgiveness. I think can offend us as being judgmental. I have discovered over the years that if people know one verse in the Bible, it is Matthew 7, 7, do not judge. As though somehow this cancels out any morality, any moral standards, or any system of morality. It's beyond the scope of what I want to look at today. But I can assure you that what Jesus intended was not a cancellation of any sense of morality. And I find it interesting that people say, do not judge, and yet they feel feel comfortable making judgments left and right on all sorts of things. Uh, We may call it something else. We may call it quality control, movie reviews, for example, scoring performances from athletics to cooking. Um, But somehow we think it's wrong to judge when it comes to morality. You can judge everything else, but not morality. And so when it comes to forgiveness, we don't, I think we are somewhat offended that perhaps someone would suggest that we have done wrong. But I think the other difficulty that we face is that in this parable, the one we looked at last week of the unforgiving servant, the language of the parable is not that of morality. If you remember back, um, Yes, the unforgiving servant is seen as sort of the bad guy because of what he does to his fellow servant. But the whole language of, of the parable is that of money, of economy. Uh, the 10,000 talents, the two, or the 100 denarii. Um, the language is that of debt and indebtedness and, and not of morality as such. This, I think, might make us feel a bit more comfortable to somehow remove forgiveness from the arena of morality and simply talk in terms of, I'm sorry and that's okay and don't worry about it. I would remind you, though, that in the Lord's Prayer, as we find it in Matthew 6, we hear the words, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I think that Jesus uses the language of debt and indebtedness to get across a point of morality, and if we're not careful, we may miss it. The language of wealth and possessions is also used in the parable we will look at today, the parable of the rich fool. And yet I will argue that wealth and possessions are not the primary focus. 
Follow along, if you would, as I read here in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse number 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store uh, store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. In the parables that we've studied thus far, we've seen that they were given in response either to a question or a request. And that's part of the answer. Somebody comes and either asks a question and a dialogue begins and then Jesus speaks a parable. Or someone comes up with a request and Jesus speaks a bit and then he gives a parable. In the Good Samaritan, the lawyer asks, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The parable of the friend who came at midnight. The request was, Lord, teach us to pray. And then in the unforgiving servant that we looked at last week, Peter asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother? I think anyone who's familiar with the Gospels and with these parables knows the connection between the questions or the requests and the parables we've looked at. But probably not in our passage today. Um, The parable of the rich fool, I think people are familiar enough with. But the context, I, I don't know that people put the two together. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. One writer put it this way, Few scenes are as timeless or cross-cultural as the division of property following the death of a parent or grandparent. It has been suggested that that wonderful verse in Psalm 133, verse 1, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity, has this scenario in mind. Isn't it wonderful when siblings get along together after the inheritance has been divided? How tragic it is when siblings exhaust their friendship and any bonds they have over the spoils that are recorded on a piece of paper we call a will. In Deuteronomy 21, the law tells us that the firstborn son is to receive a double portion of the inheritance. And so it could be argued that in this particular scenario, uh, the elder brother is unwilling to divide the inheritance with the younger brother. And so the younger brother has come to Jesus asking for Jesus to intervene and to make sure that the older brother gives the younger brother what he should have. So the younger brother comes to Jesus and asks him to be the judge or the arbiter in the matter. I don't want to make too much of this, but how we respond to issues of property, possessions and money, I think, says a great deal about us. If you could ask Jesus one question, what would it be? The answer to that, I think, will tell you a lot about yourself. 
This request here tells us quite a bit about this man. He has his one opportunity to ask Jesus a question. And what he asks is that Jesus, in fact, will act as a judge and an arbiter in the matter of inheritance. So Jesus responds to the man as he does. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in an abundance of his possessions. Why does this man ask Jesus this? Jesus is a teacher. He's traveling. From what Luke tells us, his ministry in Galilee is finished. He's making his way toward Judea and Jerusalem. Why does he ask Jesus to act in in this dispute? Well, in fact, at that time, rabbis oftentimes were called upon in civil disputes, particularly though, or not particularly, but including those involving inheritance. The role of the rabbi was not only to be a leader in the community and to be a teacher, but also to be an administrator of justice. In fact, Jesus reminds the Pharisees of this in uh, Matthew 23 as he is condemning their behavior. He reminds them what their real duty is, and that is to provide justice, pursue justice. Jesus is not a rabbi but no doubt his reputation has preceded him. And so he is approached and asked to act as an arbiter in the matter. What is the request that is made? Now, I think we may miss something important here. Uh, perhaps it is the approach, the approach, teacher, a term of respect. Uh, rabbi, in fact, means teacher. And though Jesus is not a, an official rabbi, a formal rabbi, he is no doubt a teacher. And so, the man comes forward with a term of respect, which seems appropriate. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you look at it and think about it, this is not a request for true mediation. The man does not give any context to this request whatsoever, such as, okay, Jesus, my father just died, and In our family, we need to divide up his possessions, and we would like for you to help us in this matter. Please help us. No, this man comes to Jesus as someone who has already made up his mind. He is in the right, he deserves this, and he wants Jesus to make sure that he gets it. He wants Jesus to give his brother an order, a command, and tell him, this is what you must do. So it is not a request for justice. While the rabbis, in fact, were to be administrators of justice, this is not a request for justice. This is, give me what I want. You have authority. My brother will listen to you. Make sure that he gives me what belongs to me. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, I see his response in at least four parts. And I think, I would say, each one of the four parts is somewhat unexpected both to the man making the request, certainly, but I think even to us as we listen, as we are sort of bystanders and we listen to this conversation. First of all, in verse number 14, we have the direct address. He addresses them, this individual as man, which is not necessarily a term of respect, but simply, I think, to put him in his place. There is a disapproving tone. Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Jesus does not like what he sees or hears from this man. It is not about impartial mediation. It is a demand that Jesus take sides. And Jesus refuses to take sides. He will not do this. And so he begins by directly addressing the man and saying, basically, your request is out of order. 
The second part is the warning. And this is very much in the form of wisdom sayings we find, for example, in the book of Proverbs. Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in an abundance of his possessions. It's a double warning at the beginning. Watch out and be on your guard. This is something you really need to be careful of. And what is it we're to be careful of? Against all kinds of greed. Now, a cursory reading of this parable might lead one to believe that, in fact, greed was the problem with this man. And therefore, Jesus won't deal with him because the man is greedy. I will argue that that's not the case. The problem is how he views life. A man's life does not consist in an abundance of his possessions. In the culture of the first century, and many others, including ours, I would argue, Possessing things is closely related to social prestige and social status. The younger brother doesn't want to be known as a loser. Oh, you didn't get anything, did you? Your brother got it all. And he wants to have some standing, at least, in the community. Perhaps it is land that his father has left. He wants something that he can call his own. But Jesus says that that's not how life is to be viewed. Life is not to be measured in terms of what one has. Possessions are not the measure of the good life. What Jesus is trying to do in telling this parable is to deal with the problem driving the inheritance, or deal with the issue that is driving the inheritance problem. Why is it that this man asked Jesus for Jesus to intervene? It would seem from the context that the man seeks that which he thinks will give him a sense of satisfaction and social status. It will give him what he thinks his life needs. Then his life will be complete. But life is so much more than that, Jesus would tell him. And to make this point, Jesus now tells us a parable. The parable of the rich fool. I've read it once, but let's go through it again. Beginning in verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? In the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom literature, in the Psalms, we find that the issue of wealth, the dilemma of wealth and death, comes up time and time again. I just want to read one particular passage that deals with this from Psalm 49. The psalmist points out that, in fact, the pursuit of wealth is fleeting. You earn a pile of money and then you die. And then, then what? Psalm 49, beginning of verse 16. Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increase. For they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though they, while they live, they count themselves blessed and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them and will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. So what? You make a bunch of money, you're going to die like everyone else. 
The teacher in Ecclesiastes points to the futility of gaining possessions. We see this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Throughout the wisdom literature, we are given a contrast time and time again between the wise man and the fool. Jesus is telling us the story of a rich fool. Notice he is already wealthy. He already has wealth. He doesn't become wealthy because of the bumper crop. He already is wealthy. Okay. One particular harvest, he has, in fact, a bumper crop. Things have gone exceedingly well. Just, just for us to have a historical context, Jesus and his listeners lived in a world where the success of farming was dependent on many things, most of them beyond the control of any human being. Unlike our world in which we imagine that we have control when farming because we have fertilizers, we have hybrid seed, we have mechanization, we have irrigation. In that world, one would say you were at the mercy of nature. As people saw it. You had to have good weather, particularly rain. Such things are in God's hands. We forget that now because we, we imagine we have control. Let's say if you have a drought, well, that's fine. We have irrigation. But people then, I think, were very sensitive to the fact that such things were in God's hands. This bumper crop that the man had was, in fact, a gift from God. And yet he failed to see that. It seems that this man cannot imagine for a moment that God has been responsible for his good fortune, if you wish, or for his wealth. Because he failed to recognize God's source, God as the source of his farming success, God doesn't come up in any of his thoughts. Instead, his only consideration is what to do with this excessive wealth that he has accumulated How is he going to store the surpluses that he has that year? He's struggling with a happy dilemma. What am I going to do with all these things that I have? He has more money than he can spend. His facilities will not contain the surplus. What is he to do? I find it fascinating that contrary to what one would expect in that culture, he does not ask anybody else. He doesn't talk to anybody else about this. He doesn't go to the leaders of the village, of the community. He doesn't have sort of a round table discussion. What am I going to do with all this that God has given me? What we see in many ways is sort of like Silas Marner. We see a solitary man who is alone and counting his wealth by himself. And he is enjoying the isolation that prosperity provides. That one of the great things about being rich is you don't have to hang out with the unwashed masses. You don't have to talk to your neighbors. You can build a moat around your property. You can have security guards and you don't actually have to talk to people you don't want to. It is worth noting that what this man does is he talks to himself and apparently quite a bit. Um, The next time you read through the Gospel of Luke, I would have you consider how Luke records that whenever people talk to themselves or are thinking within themselves, it's usually not a good thing. It almost is a, it's not to say that that's a bad thing, but the characters in his gospel who do this are people who are not engaged with other people and they're not engaged with God. It's all about them. And so they're having this internal conversation and coming up with conclusions apart from God and apart from other people. 
So, for example, in Luke 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and said, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? See, you have a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law who hate Jesus. One would think they could have sort of an instant conclave here and just sort of discuss the issue, but they don't even do that. You have just a whole series of internal conversations going on about who, who is this guy that he can claim to forgive sins. This man, it's all about him. What am I going to do with my crops? I know this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns. I will, big, I will build larger barns. And then I will say to myself, take it easy. Enjoy your years. This is all about his achievement, his prosperity. There is no hint of gratitude at all to God for what he has been given. Now, I would argue on some level what this man plans to do is not necessarily wrong. The idea that if you have a surplus, excuse me, that if you have a surplus, perhaps you should save up for the future is not necessarily wrong. The world in which Jesus lived in Palestine, first century Palestine, life was quite fragile. Famines were common. Uh, historical t sources tell us that during the New Testament period in Palestine, there were at least 12 famines. So if you have a good year and you have surplus, I think it is prudent. It is wise to put something aside. Okay. So what this man does is not in and of itself wrong. It is, I think, a very prudent thing to do. But consider this. If this man had a bumper crop, don't you think all his neighbors did as well? Well, you think the rain just fell on his field? So if he had a good year, I would say everybody else had a good year. And not that I know anything about economics, but it seems like if you have everybody has a good year, you have a surplus, the prices will go down. So perhaps he is thinking, I know, I'm going to store the stuff and wait till there's a famine, God forbid, or there's not enough grain and the prices will go up and then I can make more money. But you know what? We're not told this. This is one of those things that, uh, if you remember when we started our study of the parables, the parables um, are usually brief and they exclude a lot of what we would consider necessary information. Um, certain questions are ignored as to why things happen or why things were done. The descriptions of people are quite thin. We're not given, we're not told anything about how old this man was. We're not told if he was married and had children. We're only simply told that he was a rich fool who had a bumper crop. We're not even told his name. We need to be careful. I need to be careful not to read things into the parable that simply are not there. The root problem in this parable of this man is that he is a fool. Now, this is not name-calling. In the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom literature, a fool is someone who lives as though God does not exist. Therefore, such a person is foolish or a fool. Psalm 14.1 The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Interesting enough, he's having this internal conversation. 
And in this internal conversation, he says, there is no God. If he would talk to his neighbors, they would, they would say, listen, you're wrong. Or if he would talk to God, he would know that he was wrong. But within this internal world, this conversation, he says, there is no God. This, the conversation and the outlook of this man shows him to be a fool because God is not a part of his thinking. God is not part of the equation. His self-conversation does not lead to self-reflection. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. And then later on, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. One can sense that his life has made him proud. His efforts have made him feel self-sufficient, autonomous, a law to himself, and invulnerable. But none of these are true. But he thinks that he is okay, he is invulnerable, he is self-sufficient, because God has no place in his life. He is, in fact, a fool. He lives as though God does not exist. I don't know if it was Francis Schaeffer who coined the phrase, but it's where I first heard it. He's a practical atheist. In his practice, he lives as though God does not exist. He may have said, he may have gone to temple, he may have gone to the synagogue and done all the things he was supposed to, but in his actions, he practiced life as though God did not exist. Well, at this point in the parable, Jesus could have wrapped it up with a warning about wealth and how that wealth can seduce our souls and take us away from God. But this is not how the story ends. What we find is what we find in many parables, the element of reversal. The man goes from rich and getting richer to dead. And boy, he certainly didn't see that coming. And perhaps the person hearing the parable for the first time doesn't see that coming either. You see, God does exist, and he does know what is going on. He rules the universe in every aspect of it, including a deluded rich man who thinks he is in control of his life. And so in this parable, God intervenes with a shock. God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, you, will get what you then who will get what you prepared for yourself? The language in Greek speaks volumes, and we're doing English, and so we may miss some of it. God calls him a fool, one who thought he was rich, but in fact was bankrupt, impoverished, and empty. And that very night, the man died. But we're not told it that way, are we? We're not told that night the man died. What we are told, rather, is this very night your life will be demanded from you. That is, that night God was going to take from him what God had given to him, and that was his life. The word demanded here in Greek was used of repayment of a loan or of stolen property. God has given to this man, forget the bumper crop. I mean, that's down the road. The man's life itself has come as a gift from God, and he doesn't see it. He just doesn't see it. He has wasted it. And now it is taken by the one who gave it to him in the first place as a gift. All that he possessed, in quotation marks, will be taken from him. And who will get it? The fourth part here of Jesus' answer is the application in verse number 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And here is the point of the parable. 
told in response to a man who wanted Jesus to take his side in a family dispute over the inheritance. But what is the point? What is Jesus trying to say here? Is Jesus saying a person should not save? Is Jesus saying a person should not save for the future? That a person should not think about retirement? No, not at all. This is not the application that he was trying to make. The issue is not money. The issue is not planning. The issue is not prudence. The issue is desire. I have to tell you that one of the books that I've been using as I prepare sermons on parables begins the section on this parable with these words. The last parts of us to be converted are our pockets and purses. Many of us are so secretive about our feelings on the subject of money that we have concealed them even from ourselves in our unconscious minds. I immediately got nervous because I always get nervous when people start talking about money in the context of church or ministry. Because it seems that anything that has to do with money somehow is used in the cause of saying you need to give more money. Um, There is a place for that. This parable is not it. This is not the point here. The last part of a person to be converted is not his wallet or a woman's purse. I'm convinced that the last part of us to be converted, and it's an ongoing process, are our desires. What is it that we desire? Earthly treasure or heavenly treasure? Earthly security or heavenly security? Earthly values or heavenly values? What we see in this parable is how little control the man had over his life, no matter what he thought. He thought he was in control. No matter what he had, it was given to him as gift. The focus of his life was wrong. Uh, Jesus speaks of a man whose focus is wrong in terms of wealth and material things. But I, I'm afraid that if we think that's all that Jesus is trying to say, well, like, hey, I don't have, I'm not wealthy. So apparently what Jesus is talking about has nothing to do with me because I'm not a wealthy person. One of the things we've seen in this series is one of the dangers of doing parables is that somehow parables can be used to mean anything that the person speaking wants them to mean, that their own interpretation or their own meanings have been attached to it. And so with a parable like this, having to do with a rich individual, the temptation is to think, well, this is all about money and that this is all about wealth. And again, because people say, well, I don't have any money. I don't I have very little money. This has nothing to do with me. But money, I'm convinced, is not the issue. It is a part of the symptom of the problem. Is it possible to be rich or wealthy in things other than money? Sure it is. Sure it is. Um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Guy and I are celebrating our 19th wedding anniversary. Well, before we could get married, um, we had to go through a procedure, the Pamanhikan, in which um, Ruth's mom, Mama De La Rosa, came with me as my family representative, and we met with Guy's family. And Mama began the proceedings by saying, we have come here today to ask for Guy's hand in marriage. And we went through this procedure. And in, in the process of things, Gia's father said to me, my family is not a wealthy family. We are not rich in money, but we are rich in love. 
Uh, I've not forgotten that. I don't think I will. There are many ways that a person can be wealthy. It's not just money. Okay? Or think of your health. Although it's not an exact equivalent, don't we say that if somebody's not doing well, that they are in poor health? So it isn't just about money. And I think if that's how we see this parable, then we will really miss what Jesus is trying to say. The rich fool is a fool because he lives as though God does not exist. I would suggest to you that that is a problem that confronts every one of us every moment of every day. We say we are the people of God. We pray. We come together to worship. But in the practice of our living, do we live as though God exists? I'm convinced the issue is desire. What is it that we desire? I think perhaps in the weeks to come we will come back to this issue. But think of this a moment. We are made in the image of the Creator, right? We're human beings made in the image of God, the Creator. And what are we told about God? We're told many things about Him, but when we are given a definition that God is... We're not told that God is thought or that God is action, that God is communication. All those things are true about God, but what we are told about God is that God is love. And as those who are made in the image of God, it is desire that is at the root of who we are. And when we are called to be the people of God, I think the thing that takes the longest, that takes the most energy to be converted, if you wish, are our desires. Our desires. Because we may say one thing, but in fact do something else. And the the issue is because of what we desire. The man who comes to Jesus desires that Jesus would give him what he wants. That's what his life is about. Tell my brother to share the inheritance. That's his desire. For the rich fool, his desire is being rich and having a cushy life. It's not the money as such. And it's not possessions as such. Because look, if you would, again, at the last verse of our passage in verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. How do you imagine that you are rich toward God? Again, I don't think Jesus is saying you should not store up things. You should not save. I don't think that's the issue at all. The issue is what drives you? What is your desire? What are your desires? And in this story, both the man making the request and the rich fool have the wrong desires. And Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard. Because greed, I think in many ways, is a symptom that our desires are all messed up. That we desire, in the wrong way, the wrong things. And instead, our desire should be toward God. We should be rich in desire toward God. Rather than to ourselves. What, what do I want? What do I desire? rather than what should I desire with regard to God.
Let's pray together. Our Father, we live in a time in which possessions seem to mean far too much. Wealth seems to drive so much of what we do. And we forget so easily that everything we have is a gift from you. Life itself, our health, our skills, our families, our homes. It all comes from you. Our problem boils down to our desires. Oftentimes we are grateful for what you've given us, but yet we find in our thinking, in our what drives us, it is because of what we desire, what we want. And we forget the words of Jesus that we are to seek first the kingdom, and then all these things will be added. in a culture in which success or happiness is measured in terms of possessions, may we see that this is not the case. In a culture in which richness is seen in terms of what we have, may we see that this is not the case. And as those whom you have called to be your people and to be disciples of Jesus, May we take to heart what Jesus told this man. May we recognize that our desires need to be corrected. And in this we should be imitators of Jesus. I thank you for this time we could spend together worshiping you. As we leave this place, may your spirit and grace go with us. And as we are in the world in the coming days. May these words stick with us. As we examine our lives, may we see what it means to desire the right things and to be rich toward you rather than thinking about ourselves. We have so much to be thankful for, for the years you've given us, The 19 years you've given Guy and me together. 17 for Tom and Anne for the 34 years of Dan's working. What amazing gifts these are from you. And we thank you for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.